We're in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. Love marks a Christ follower. Love marks a Christ follower. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. For this is a message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was, the, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but indeed and in truth. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Uh, by now, everyone in here has memorized what the theme of 1 John is, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now say that with me, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not equivocal. It's not equivocal, and it gives many tests to help you determine. And remember, these tests are introspection. These tests are not to test your neighbor, test your wife, test your kids, test, they're to test you. And so it's a self-test, okay? Remember, Obeying Jesus' commands. How are you doing with that? That's chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Do I really have love for the brethren? 2.10, and then we all the way through it, and we're going to go through it again today. Do you hold fast to sound doctrine? Chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. And then you have to ask yourself this question, and I think every Christian has to do this. Am I teachable? Am I teachable? Do I have a teachable spirit? Or do I stubbornly hold on to my traditions? The things that I thought were, were the way, way it was. Am I stubbornly holding on to that, even though the Word of God has shown me that it's something different than what I thought? That's something quite huge. Does habitual, unconfessed, given over to sin mark my life? Am, am I ignoring my conscience? Remember, that's the inward barometer that tells you what's right and what's wrong. Sundenesis is the Greek word, and it means moral awareness, moral consciousness. And we know that we have this moral awareness and moral consciousness because God has written his law into our hearts in Romans 2.15. The scripture goes on to say, their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Now there is a warning here that I wanted to make sure that everybody had, particularly last week, repeatedly ignoring your conscience will desensitize it. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it talks about a seared conscience or a cauterized conscience, a conscience that has been numbed and is no longer responding. And then there's a warning about, that we see in Scripture about God giving people over. God people, in, in, in Romans chapter 1, three times he said, God gave them up, gave God, gave them up, God gave them up. These are people that their conscience has been seared. They're no longer susceptible or no longer sensitive to the Spirit of God or to the Word of God. And God gives them over to their sin. Then we talked about things to do to not be at home with sin. That was our subject last week, not to be at home with things. Things to do. And there's a memory verse that I would encourage everyone in here to memorize. Everyone in here, the put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's Romans 13, 14. And remember, the flesh is that part of you that fights against your spirit. The flesh is that part of you that always wants to go back to the old you, to the old way. The flesh is comfortable in the way things were, very uncomfortable with the change in the spirit life. 
The spirit-filled life is very counter to the flesh, and the flesh does not like it. It always wants to drag you back to the way it was. We are, we are to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And I don't know if you remember what lust was, but the word was epithumia. Epi is above. So it's upon the mind. It's upon the mind. The, the, the flesh works upon the mind, the diseased portion of our mind, to take us back to the old ways. Take us back to the old ways. Then we went to Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. And we were to put off the old man, and we were to put on the new man. And then we went to Galatians 5.16. If we really want to be overcomers, if we want to really not be home at sin, we must do these things. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does walking in the Spirit mean? That means living in a way. You are living in this way, and that you're living in the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life, and then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then we looked at uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 last time, and then we are to practice righteousness. And you know, practice takes effort. Practice takes time. Practice is a discipline in our lives. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not automatic. It's something that takes work, takes effort. And it occurs when we practice righteousness. This only occurs as we are abiding in Christ. Remember the word? I hope you never forget at least one Greek word. Menno. Abide. Menno. Dwell in. Make your home in. Be involved with God on on a permanent, constant basis being at home with him. And then we want to realize that we're not going to walk this thing out perfect. If we're not going to be in home, at home with sin, we must realize there are going to be times when we have slips. We go back to the old you. Remember, you don't like old you when he comes out or she comes out. But he, he or she will come out from time to time. And when, they, when that person does, we are to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9. Remember, our, what the scripture we went to was Genesis 3, 7, talking about Adam and Eve when they sinned. And the first thing that they tried to do when they sinned is they tried to cover up and conceal. And they made themselves outer garments to cover themselves, fig leaves to cover themselves. And usually this really points to something. It points to people doing something religious to cover their sin. It's not a religious thing that we can do to cover our sin. It's a relationship that covers our sin with the Lord Jesus Christ. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its love. Put off the old man. Walk in the Spirit. Practice righteousness. And when you sin, confess it. Own it. No excuses. Remember, the flesh is an excuse machine. The flesh is an excuse machine. We start making excuses for why you are, where you are, things that you've done. You're living out consequences. The flesh is going to make excuses. Okay, there's, there's things that happen in everybody's lives, but... Uh, when you do something, own it. Own it. Uh, a must-know for every believer struggling with sin. And we do, then we covered 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And this is, this is huge because we have been loosed from the, from the bonds of Satan. We have been loosed. We've been set free. The bonds have been broken. Satan's chains and Satan's hooks have been loosed, but the flesh pull will continue to nag you until you're out of here. You're never going to be free of Mr. or Mrs. Flesh. It's always going to be a tug on you, but it can be resisted. The flesh can be resisted because you have something in you that allows you to resist it, and everybody knows the answer to that question. That person is the Holy Spirit. That's right. Allows you to overcome. Now, this week, John's emphasis is on love for the brethren, love for one another, love that is more than words. You ever have somebody say, oh, I have such a great need, and they say, oh, man, I love you, brother. 
I love you, sister. I'm praying for you. Hey, look, I need a coat. I need some food. I need a this. I need a that. And so platitudes, John is not saying platitudes are, you know, pulling for somebody, praying for somebody. Those are important things. But if you can help them, we are called to help them. So this week, love marks a Christ follower. And I want to tell you, love is action. It's a verb. It's an action, and it's also an attitude. It's also an attitude. Love marks a Christ follower. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And as always, we ask you to speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to put the world away for just a second. The things that we've been dwelling on, the things that we might be ruminating on, the things that have troubled us this week, set them aside and help us to hear your voice speak to our inner, inner person, inner man. We need you, Father. Spirit of God, do your work today within each one of us. Teach us the things that we need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Beatles wrote a song, All We Need Is Love. They had at least one truthful statement. And we do need love. <laughs> love marks a Christ follower. Charlie Garrett says this, Think about the times in which the recipients of this letter lived. Under the weight of the Roman Empire, the emperor insisted to be treated as God. And Christians could not do that. And what happened to Christians who could not do that? They suffered. Many of them died. Christians were desperately in need of sticking together despite petty differences. Ecclesiastes says this, 4, 9 through 12, says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can, be, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Folks, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in unity. There's strength when we do life together. There's strength when we encourage one another. We should love one another. Now, what is love? What is love? Well, the word is agape or agapeo in this, in this case. And it's a direction of the will. There's a determination in the person's heart that I will love you. It's choosing to love someone even when they are unlovable. Now, that is a God thing because it's easy to love someone when they're nice to you, but it is a God thing to love someone when they are unlovable. And you know what the second meaning is, which I didn't write up here, but is just as important, just as significant as this. Agape love is doing what is best for someone, not necessarily what they want. How does that speak to you? If you loved me, you would dit 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 dit. Oh no, if I loved you, I would do dit 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 dit. Okay? Like God loved us. You know, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world wasn't looking for Jesus to come. The Jews were looking for Messiah, but they didn't they, they rejected him. But God gave the world what they needed, a Savior. And the world wasn't looking, wasn't, it wasn't what they wanted. But God's love was such that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, love marks a Christ follower. In verses 11 and 12, Christ followers are to love and not hate. That makes a lot of sense. Easy statement. Let's watch what it says here. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's the message of God from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. And then he gives us the example. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. That murdered is slew his brother. Okay? And why did he slew his brother? Why did he murder his brother? Because his works were evil, 
and his brothers were righteous. Now, when I talk about love and hate, when I talk about love and hate, hate can be a vehement hate like Cain hated his brother Abel and, and ended up killing him. That is vehement hate. But it also can mean to love less. And we see it in the context of Romans 9.13 when, when Paul says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That means he loved Esau less. There was a lesser love there. It wasn't the vehement hate. Now, Jesus modeled love. He taught love. He taught us to love. And he also commanded us to love. Not an option. He commanded us to love. It was his final commandment. And it's not a suggestion that we must love one another. That is in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. In this way, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now look, at this is not something new that we should love one another. But the newness is, as I have loved you, as Jesus gave the example of sacrificial giving love. That is how we are to love. He loved us in that manner. We are to love others in that manner. And that is not natural. That is supernatural. And I'm going to say that several times in this talk. Several times in this talk. How does love for, for one another look? And again, loving one another is not easy. You realize that. Even if you're in a husband and wife relationship that is really good, there are times when you don't sense you might say, I love you. I love you no matter what. But you're not sensing that in that relationship. Let's be honest, okay? No one said it would be easy. But it looks like God's love for us. And you know what God does with us? I think that is the greatest evidence that we are loving someone else. He puts up with us. In Colossians 3, it says, bearing with one another. The summary for this is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, paracolito, call you alongside me, to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. You were called to be a Christ follower. Wherever he has placed you, walk worthy of that calling. That's what's spoken of here. And how do I walk worthy of that calling? With all lowliness, that's humility, gentleness, long-suffering, the work is macrothumia, like a thermometer, slow to heat up with people, slow to become angry with people, macrothumia, with all long-suffering, and then bearing with one another, putting up with one another in love. And the end result of this is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is what Christ's love looks like. That is how it looks like. Is this easy? No way. Is it an option? No way. <laughs> is loving one another a command from the Lord? Yes, it is a command from the Lord. So how is this done? It's only done through the Holy Spirit's power and only as we abide in Christ. Make our home in Christ. Dwell in Christ. We cannot do this in the natural. We cannot do this in the natural. This is a God thing. So why is this so important? Why is this so important? Well, loving one another, scars and all. Scars and all. Even porcupine Christians, you know, they have the little quills and ready to pick you with them. 
<laughs> and we're, believe me, we're all porcupines from time to time. None of us are smoothed out. So loving one another, scars and all, are required, is required for unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Folks, you, you know this, you know this, you know this. United we stand, divided we fall. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. Any, any, any unit that is divided against itself, whether it's a country divided against itself, didn't Abraham Lincoln say, Abraham Lincoln quoted this in the Civil War, we cannot stand if we're divided. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A family divided against itself cannot stand. A church certainly cannot stand. A workplace cannot stand. If you have division on a team, any team, it doesn't stand. United we stand, divided we fall. Remember, Satan's goal is very clear. It's very clear. Disunity, division, and I'm going to use a word that I've used in the past because I think this is so important, and I think this is what happened to Cain. Offense. Offense. Cain was offended. At one time or another, we have all taken the bait of Satan which is offense, which is an offense. I've taken the offense. I've taken the bait. Now, we have all caused offense. Would you agree with that? And we have all been the recipients of offense. It's something that is characteristic of living in a fallen world and fallen natures. So, all of us, all of us, we must recognize Satan's tactics. We must recognize his methods. And has used these methods right out of the chute, right out of the gate. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Genesis chapter 4, verse 2 through 7. And we're going to talk about Cain and Abel very quickly. You know, the setting is, is that Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out of the garden and they started having kids. And they started having kids in the fallen world and Cain was the first one. And then Abel was born and they had all kinds of other kids. These two are the first that are mentioned. In verse 2 we see this. Then she bore this time, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And again, I want to emphasize that both of these are admirable professions, and both necessary in the culture. Both admirable, both necessary in that culture. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought the firstborn of the flock, and of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now, a lot of times it is, it is you're looking at this and, and you're thinking, well, this is all about the sacrifice. It was, a, it was a blood sacrifice with the sheep, and it was just an earth sacrifice for, for Cain. But remember, there's a lot of sacrifices in, in Judaism that come from the ground. You know, heave offerings, wave offerings, grain offerings, that sort of thing. So I think it goes deeper than that. It might have been the wrong sacrifice, but I think it goes deeper than that. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now watch what happened. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain's attitude was not appropriate. I think it was more than the offering. I think it was the attitude behind the offering. An attitude of superior, I should be accepted no matter what. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? 
if you do well, will not will you not be accepted? Again, if you do if you come to me the right way, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, Cain, but you should rule over it, or you or you should master it in the NIV. Now, this is significant because I think that they both, both brought an offering, but they, the attitudes were different. And Cain was offended because his offering was rejected. He was jealous of his brother. Offense usually has its root in some sort of jealousy. I'm not getting the recognition that I deserve. So with that stated, Cain was offended his sacrifice was not accepted, and he took the bait of Satan, the offense bait, the offense bait. Jealousy, uh, he was jealous of his brother. I'm not being recognized. And again, the root of offense, the root of offense is I'm not being recognized. I am jealous of what's going on here. And God says to Cain, he says to all of us, God to everyone that are offended, Genesis 4, 7, sin lies at your door. Its desire is for you. Now, what is sin's desire? It wants to cause division. It wants to cause disunity. wants to cause even death. Even death. But you should rule over it. Cain, don't take the bait. And he pleaded with them. And Cain did not heed and deal with the offense. Now, listen to this. The offense simmered. The offense percolated. The offense grew in Cain's mind. Can you recognize any of this in your own life? This is what happens to us. Oh, I guess I can own myself. This is what happens to me. Now, maybe it doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. And it boiled over. He ruminated on it. He churned over it. And then Cain ends up murdering his righteous brother Abel, and that is the ultimate in separation, the ultimate in hate. Now, the typical Christian response to offense is to withdraw and turn away. Have you recognized that? In churches, with people, friendships, this happens to us. People stand on their feelings of offense instead of bearing with one another, putting up with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, that's supernatural. Taking offense is the natural. That is the natural way I respond. I can just tell you that. You do something to me, what do I want to do? Something to you. You poke me in the eye, I want to poke you in two eyes. That sort of thing. And many in Christianity end up saying, no more. And they surrender to their feelings. They take the bait and withdraw from relationships. This happens in every, any level where there are relationships, whether it's churches, whether it's families, whether it's husband and wife relationships, friendships, wherever there are meaningful relationships. This has been a tool of the enemy right out of the gate, right up until today, and it is exceedingly effective, exceedingly effective. Christians are to be different. We are not to act like the world. In this light, hear Jesus' words all over again. And remember, offense is a universal problem. In the light of what I've just said, listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. In this way, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It takes on a whole different ring, doesn't it? It means I have, to, I have to walk with a little bit of thick skin 
and a soft heart. Thick skin and a, th- and a soft heart. Loving one another, warts and all, is a witness to the world of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in us. It is not us. It is Christ in us. Christ, lover, Christ, excuse me, Christ followers must love and not hate and not be so quick to take the offense bait. Now, let me give a qualifier here. Every time I talk about offense, I will hear people saying afterwards, you were talking about me. Why were you talking about me? Why were you talking about me? I've had this happen several times when I've given this little, little thing on offense. This has nothing to do with anybody in particular. This thing I prepared on Monday, and it came and was developed throughout the week. So it's not at any person, but it is at all of us, because all of us walk with this problem. So, verse 13. And again, our our subject is love marks a a Christ follower. Verse 13, Christ followers know this, and I think you know this, that the world hates you. The world system hates you. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be amazed that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Believers in Jesus Christ know this, and and you know, intuitively know, and from what you see on the news you know, more and more and more this world is becoming hostile to Christians. I'll give you one example. One example. it's, it's, It's India. India was a bastion of safety for Christians until 2014 when a new prime minister came in. The new prime minister had a goal of eradicating all religions other than Hinduism from India. And so what has happened is that the attacks have increased in India. Overt, vicious attacks, even to murdering Christians, has happened. Extensive violence. The, Hindu, the Hindus have have put all kinds of pressure on the Christians and their families, not just losing their jobs, losing their positions in the culture, but now they're losing their lives. And it has accelerated, and it is worse today there than it's ever been in India. They have something called Gahar Wapsi in India, which means homecoming, encouraging Christians to come out of Christianity and back home to Hinduism, to Hinduism. If they don't, they're physically assaulted and sometimes killed. Voice of the Martyrs warns that this year, China, India, and Nigeria in particular are places where Christians are being persecuted more and more overtly. They had been, for a time, bastions of safety. There are worse places in the world than these, like North Korea. There is Saudi Arabia. You can't, you can't name the name of Christ. But these places in the past had been open somewhat to Christianity, and now the door is being closed. And Christians there are suffering. The United States has been insulated from persecution. Why? Because we've been founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. The USA has prospered and has been a safe place for Christians for, for centuries, for a couple, several centuries. We experience the favor of God, and I would say it is no more. No more. We are post-Christian, and we're embracing all world religions. And because we're embracing all world religions, we're coming just like the rest of the world. So Christians in this country, it is inevitable that persecution will follow. Now, my hope has always been Maranatha. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But if he doesn't come, we, like the rest of the world, may very well experience what they are experiencing. 
Will the true church stand? That is the question. The rest of the world is, ex is experiencing it. We should not be surprised. Jesus told us it would be this way. In John 15, you might have a, a crease in your Bible. We've been here so many times in John 15, mentioning this verse. But Jesus said this. He was very clear to his followers. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. They give parties for its own. They got all things, kinds of stuff in Hollywood for its own. All kinds of rewards, all kinds of walks of fame for their own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This is the facts, folks. This is the facts. But good news is this. Good news for every Christian. This world is not our home. We're only passing through. <laughs> you don't put down deep roots here. This is not it. And Jesus said he, he overcame the world. In John 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Thalispus is the Greek word. Crushing. Burdens. You will have that. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's, that's what Jesus told his followers. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Verse 14 and 15. Love marks a Christ follower, folks. Verse 14 and 15. Christ followers know hatred is evidence of spiritual death. Hatred is evidence of spiritual death. We must not hate. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Supernatural, okay? Because Christ is in us. Spirit is in us. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother, oh, watch this, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is right in our face with this. He does not pull back. He does not equivocate. He just lays it out here. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, a manslayer, a homicide committer. The word is used one other time in Scripture. It's John 8.44 talking about Satan. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks... He speaks his lies. He speaks from his native language, for he's a liar and he is a father of lies. He is a murderer. Folks, hate and murder are the same to God. Hate and murder are the same to God. John continually asserts, we know, we know, we know. None of these things are conjecture. He says, we know, we know, we know. Now, the question is, who are our brothers? Who are our brothers? Who are the brethren? Well, I'll say I will, they're fellow believers. God expects us to love one another in the family. We're to love the world, but particularly within the family of God. He expects us to love one another. Love is evidence that you are genuine. If you hate the brethren, then you are not in the family of God. He does not hesitate on this at all. Now, what about those that we just don't like? that we're not kindred with, 
And I would suggest to you this. This requires all the more power of God working in you. Now, how does this really work in, in, in reality? I would say this, that it is a natural overflow of abiding in Christ. You can't do this naturally. You must, must, must abide in Christ to do this. It's the Spirit of God dwelling in you, Christ in you. He produces in you fruit. As we abide in him, fruit is produced. A natural occurrence of abiding is fruit. And what do we see in Galatians chapter 5 for fruit? The first thing is love. And in everything after love, I believe, describes what love is. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, agenda, self-control. Love will automatically occur if we are abiding in Christ. Folks, it's not natural to love all the brethren. It is supernatural. It's God in you, an overflow of Christ in you. It is a supernatural love that comes from abiding in Christ. We can't conjure it up. We can't pretend. It has to come from abiding, dwelling, making our home with him. Verse 16 through 18, Christ's followers surrender their lives and serve others. Christ followers surrender their lives, my will, my way, deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. That is what surrender is, and serve others. 16 through 18, by this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. He demonstrated it. He surrendered his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sacrifice for the brethren. And then he says what this looks like. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him, make his home in him? Menno. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's a big difference between talking and doing. A big difference between talking and doing. The result of an inward change, when Jesus Christ comes to reign within you, abides in you, an inward, an inward change, abiding in Christ, is an outward focus. Not an inward focus, it's an outward focus. It's a giving nature, and it's an attitude of this. It's not mine. I don't own anything. You think you're out of debt, and I think it's a good thing. I think Dave Ramsey's got a good program, get out of debt, and don't be a slave, and that, that sort of thing. But we, in reality, do not own anything. Everything that we have belongs to God. We're just caretakers here. And the word is steward, which I'll describe in just a second, not just yet. But I want you to think about something. To whom much is given, much is required. And I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 41 through 48, the parable of the faithful steward. The parable of the faithful steward. Peter's going to ask a question because Jesus has just explained this and they don't understand it. So Peter said to him, says to Jesus, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all the people? Now watch how Jesus answers. He does, not, he does a Jesus answer. He doesn't answer the question. He just tells him what he needs to know. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, who his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? And then he, said, he gives the answer to this. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He who is faithful 
all the way through until Jesus comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Joint heirs with Jesus. Isn't, God is so generous. Ruler over everything that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, Oh, my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Hey, this guy, is this is, this is carnal thinking, folks. This is lost person thinking. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at, that, at, at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. Oh, that's an unsafe person. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. I think this is talking about the nation of Israel. I think he's alluding to the, to, to the, to the Jewish people. They had so many privileges that the world did not have. They had the true God. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had all the advantages. And yet they, they, just, they just threw it away. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, for much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Hear this. A steward... God expects us to be stewards of what we have. A good servant is a steward, a caretaker of what God has given us. And what does that mean to me? That means that I am to take care of what God has given me. I'm reflecting him and how I take care of my house, how I take care of myself, how I take care of the things that he's given me. That's just one thought. But a steward is one who manages another's property. It's not yours, it's God's. It's not yours, it's God's. Now, we're not acting like a steward when. When. Remember, it's not mine, it's God. Everything is his. Your house, your children, your grandchildren, your wife, your husband, your work, your bank account, your car, everything is his. That is a steward's mentality. I'm taking care of what he's given me. Now, I'm not a good steward, number one, when I'm controlling. When I'm controlling. When it's your way or the highway, you're the only one that can get it done. When you start thinking like that, you're not a steward. All things must flow through you. That is not thinking like a steward. Controlling. Secondly, bragging. Now, this can be outright bragging, how great I art. <laughs> or it can be subtle. And as Christians, we got that subtle thing going. How did I do today? Chris, how did I do? How was my talk today? Do you think I connected with the people today? <laughs> oh, yes, dear, you did so, you know. Bragging. I mean, it's, it's subtle. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just trying to give you an example. It's that subtle undercurrent. You know, Scripture says, do not think of yourself more highly than, than you ought. But with sober judgment, consider others better than yourself. That is the steward's mentality. Not bragging, but deferring to other people. And the third one that I really want to emphasize today that I think hits every person in here, and that's worry. That's worry. You are not a good steward when you're worrying. When you're worrying about anything, the root of worry always goes back to loss. Am I going to lose a person, place, or thing? That would be a noun, wouldn't it? A person, place, or thing. What am I, I'm worried about losing something. You're not thinking like a steward, and you're not abiding in Christ when you worry. Jesus says, don't worry about anything. Who by worrying can add one cubit to his height? Or 
one, one benefit to it. Nothing. Now, if you would, get your little sheet of paper out here. Class, okay, your little sheet of paper. Let's go through this. And it, it, you're, you have the title, Surrender to Peace, but I wish I would have wrote on there, Be a good steward of your mind and surrender to peace. Let me say this again. Be a good steward of your mind and surrender to peace. And again, this is from the Hebrew, Hebrew for Christians website. The Hebrew for Christians website. Now, starts out with Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. Now, those are easy words to say when you're in the midst of worry and you're trembling and you're going, oh, what's going to happen next? And the, word, and the Word of God tells us, be still and know that I am God. This is something that you must do. You must quiet your heart to the divine presence. Listen to that language. You must quiet your heart to the divine presence. Therefore, set the Lord always before you, Psalm 16.8. So how do I quiet my heart to the divine presence? I set the Lord always before me. In the New Testament... In the New Testament, it is abide in Christ. Make your home in Christ. See, I can't enjoy the divine presence if I'm, de- if, if I'm abiding in the worry, if I'm dividing in the thing that is taking me away from abiding in Christ. See, I can't abide in Christ and abide in my worry at the same time. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And refuse anxious thoughts that weigh upon you, creating pressure and dis-ease uneasiness. Quieting your heart enables you to hear the holy whisper. The holy whisper. Enables means the ability to do. You are able to hear the holy whisper of God. Now you have more there, but we're going to script to the second paragraph. Think about this when you worry. Now worry is a place of exile and pain. Would you agree? If you're a worrier, okay, I'm a worrier, I can worry about anything. Okay, that is a sin. That is a sin. So I have to work on this. I'm not a good steward of my mind if I'm worrying. Worrying is a place of exile and pain, since God's name means presence and love. Be anxious to practice, practice the absence, the absence of God's of God's presence instead of practicing His presence. Let me say that again. Being anxious is to practice the absence of God's presence instead of practicing. His presence. A divided house cannot stand. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The word translated anxiety comes from the verb that means divided into pieces. Bring your broken pieces to God, including those things that are distracting you, that make you ambivalent and afraid to receive God's, to receive God's healing for your divided heart. And then the third paragraph, note that the verb be still. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Rapha means to let go. Let go of that distraction. Let go of that worry. Let go of it. Stop striving and to surrender everything to the care of God. Being still means letting go of your need to control the world. Isn't that something? Being still is letting go of that need to control the world, a person, place, thing. And then last paragraph. This is, if you haven't heard anything, this is how it's implemented. Walking with God isn't just a matter of head education, but also 
heart education. Okay? Heart training, heart education is implemented by head education. And these two must always go together as spirit and truth. Head education seeks knowledge primarily as a means of defining what you believe. Heart education, this is what we want. Heart education, on the other hand, centers on fear or rather in overcoming your fear by trusting in God's love and healing grace. When you accept that you are accepted despite yourself. Oftentimes we beat ourselves to death because we are inadequate. We failed at something. And it keeps coming up to us. and keeps coming up and keeps bringing it up in our mind. I go, no, I don't have to let that stay there. I will not let that stay there. You let go, quit denying who you are, and accept God's unconditional care for your life. Regardless of the state of the world, when your heart learns, be still, you can know that the God of Israel reigns over all things. I'm telling you, keep this by your bedside. Keep this by your bedside. Go over it. We do not have to live in worry. We can give this thing over. But it only comes as we abide in Christ and the Master, as we still ourselves. Now, servanthood and surrender to God is the antithesis of our fleshly nature. It's the absolute opposite. Remember the flesh. The flesh is never, ever satisfied. The flesh is never satisfied. The flesh is king baby. It never surrenders. It wants to be served, and it wants to be noticed. The flesh wants to be pampered, powdered, and privileged. The flesh never gives. It always takes. And always wants more and more because it is never, ever, ever satisfied. So a spirit of servanthood, a spirit of, serv- of stewardship is contrary, is, is contrary to our flesh. And, and it is contrary to the triune nemesis that we face, enemy that we face. The world, the flesh, the devil. They all want to encourage you to worry. Look at the news. Is the news encouraging you to be upbeat? Or is it encouraging you to worry about something that is happening thousands of miles away in some isolated place that you had never heard in a million years, a hundred years ago? But now we're inundated with this information, and it's taking its toll on people, on their minds, on their minds. Now, Jesus is our example. We are to surrender He surrendered himself. He was a sacrificial servant. It says in the scripture, he he laid down his life for us. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And we should do the same. When we are fleshly, when we are self-absorbed, when I am full of me and myself and I, I know that I'm on the wrong path. While we were, Romans 5.8 says this, it's, it's a miracle of miracles. While I was at my worst, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still shaking our fist at God and say, I don't want you, God, he died for us. While we were at our unlovable, selfish peak, Christ loved us and died for us. And folks, that is amazing love. That is amazing love. So. So what should we do? 
surrender our rights. Be gentle with the brethren. Lay down our life and be like Jesus and sacrifice for the brethren. Serve. Now I have to giddy up. I have to giddy up. How will this sacrificial life-giving, life-sacrificing love, love look? It gets involved in verses 17 and 18. It gets involved. Does not stay isolated. Does not stay insulated. We, I, I can't tell you how often this, this, this bothers me. We give platitudes. I give platitudes. Love you, brother. Pray for you, brother. But I'm not willing to get involved in somebody else's life. No, he says, it isn't just I love you, I pray for you, which are important. They are important things. But when you have zero intention of getting involved, you're on the wrong path. Wrong path. Verse 18 says this, Our love must be more than word or tongue. It must be indeed. We must be willing to do, give real help. Real love is more than sentiment. It is getting involved. Now, a time for balance. A time for balance. Many people are where they are because of poor life choices. So we must be discerning when we get involved and help people. Paul sums this up very nicely in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And he's going to give you some words of wisdom. And he says this as an imperative. This is a command. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Now, that disorderly is a military term, meaning out of rank. You're not keeping step. You're out of order. Not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. That is the Christian walk. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if some, anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you who are in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Paul sums this up very nicely. Real agape love. Hear this. Real agape love does what is best for another person, not what they necessarily want. That is real love. Christ followers are to serve others, but be discerning. Conclusion. Love marks a Christ follower. Ray Steadman writes this, and this will be the conclusion. So you can just hear this. Hear Ray Steadman. He tells a story of a Jewish man named Art who was raised as an atheist. Early in life, he became a committed Marxist. At the close of World War II, he was in Germany with the American army and saw the gas chambers and the concentration camps. It filled him with hatred, first towards the Germans, and then he realized it was deeper. It was to all humanity in general, the human race. He came back to Berkeley and gave himself to education, but he came to see that it was not the answer. Education could not change hearts. Finally, he resigned his position. His wife lost her mind and was put in a mental institution. Divorced and without ties, he went out to wander. One rainy day in Greece, grubby and dirty, he was hitchhiking. 
No one wanted to pick up the seedy-looking character like him. He had stood in the rain for hours when a Cadillac stopped. To Art's amazement, the driver did not gesture did not just gesture for him to get in. He got out of the car, came around, and began to pump his hand and welcome him warmly. He took Art's dirty rucksack, threw it on his clean upholstery. Then he drove Art to a hotel, rented him a room, and gave him some food. Finally, he asked Art what, what he was doing and where he was going. And all that pent-up heartache and misery and resentment of a lifetime came pouring out of this young Jewish atheist. Well, while the man sat and listened, when Art was through, the man said, you know what this world needs? Those who are willing to wash another's feet. Art said, I never heard anything so beautiful. Why do you say that? The man said, because that's what my Lord did. For the first time in his life, the young atheist heard a clear presentation of the gospel. He became a Christian. He went on to devote his life to serving the Lord. The unnamed man, quietly going about being a Christian, demonstrated what God says to us. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love marks a Christ follower. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for this time to study your word and thankful that you love us, that you demonstrated servanthood, that we're just not looking at some pie-in-the-sky thing, but you actually came here and lived this thing out like one of us. You experienced the whole gamut of misery of being here. You showed what it was like to be a real follower of God. May we be more and more like you and less and less like us. And Lord, help us to join you where you are at work in people's lives, whether it's spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially. Help us to know what you would like us to do and where we join you in your plan to bring people into your family. Thank you that you've given us one another that we can lean on. But more than anything, I thank you that you've given us your spirit that allows us to walk this thing out. While we're in hostile territory, while the world does hate us, we can bond together as a body of believers and walk through this thing successfully together. May we not take any bait of offense. May we be willing to put up with one another, bear with one another, the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. And may we be greater together than we would ever be separated. Keep us united, Lord. We need to be close to one another as the things get darker here. Help us to be encouragers. Help us to lift up one another. We can't do this in the natural. We can only do it as we abide in you. So I ask you today, Lord, to speak to each one of our hearts and help us to abide in you more and more and more that we can live differently while we're here. Thank you for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.